You can have a seat. Uh, welcome to Summer at the Capitol. My name is Luke, one of the uh, pastors here. Uh, one of the things that's always been uh, important to me here is that this, this gathering that we have on Sunday mornings, uh, it's important to me that, that this place always feels like a super safe place for you to come. Uh, coming off a good day and a good week or a super complex couple of days or a couple of weeks. Um, this is a safe place for you to come exactly as you are, not even as you should be or wish you were, but this is a safe place to come. Uh, with all kinds of different weeks and experiences. Uh, we don't exist just for the good of some people. Uh, we exist for the good of this city and for this particular community. And so uh, if you would claim that, if you're even walking in here, we would say we exist for your good. And so we're really glad that you're here. We know uh, on a day like today, there's a lot of places that you could be. We recognize that. We see that. We know that. And so we're very thankful uh, that you decided to spend from about 10 to 11 uh, here with us this morning. So again, uh, you have permission to just be like fully where you're at this morning. Uh, fully believe, like whatever belief system you walk in at, this is a safe place to be. A safe place coming in off of things, maybe you're feeling all kinds of different ways about the, the week you've had or some decisions you've made positively or negatively. This is unendingly a safe place for you to be. Uh, this summer for us uh, has been an opportunity for us to press into a section of the Bible uh, that's full design is to lead you and I into a better lifestyle. Like, that's the purpose. And so today marks the halfway point of our summer series that we're calling Proverbs, the Way of God. And our goal in this series is to sift through this section of our Bible that's given to us just to draw us into something better. There's a lot of statements in the book of Proverbs. And God is, with each one of these, graciously saying, hey, I've created you, I know you, I love you, I'm for you. And so this way to life, this way to something better. The book of Proverbs was not getting, given to overwhelm you of all the different things you're supposed to do and believe and say, and you just get overwhelmed with all of that, and then you're going to feel guilty for not living up to all of those standards. That's not the reason Proverbs was given. It was given for God to graciously just wave you into a better lifestyle. And so what we've done this summer is we've broken up 915 sayings in the book of Proverbs down to about 12, and each Sunday we just press into one of these at a time. And the reason we're doing that is because it's our honest belief as a church that one sentence in the Bible, one sentence even in the book of Proverbs can radically change who you are, the lifestyle that you're living, maybe even the belief system that you came in with. We believe there's that much power in little statements in the Bible. And so we just press into one at a time here this summer. And so if you have a Bible with you uh, and you're interested in following along, it's also important to me uh, that, that you don't just think some creative people in the Capitol Church sit down in some office and we just try and get real creative as a group and think of some different topics to talk about. It's important that you don't think we do that. And so if you have a Bible or you have a device, uh, you can pull that out and turn to Proverbs chapter 4. I, I want you to see that what we have for you this morning is not something that we have creatively came up with, but we believe this is like what God has for this room because he loves us. And he's created us, and he wants a better lifestyle for us. And so Proverbs 4, if you're interested in following in the Bible, that's going to be the best place for you. Uh, I grew up in a place in Pennsylvania where we were a couple hours from New York City, 
and also a couple hours from Washington, D.C., and so both of those places were classic field trip spots for me uh, through middle school and high school, and I, I, two of those stood out. Like We went to those places often. Two of those trips growing up stood out. The first is, uh, I was at an age where I didn't quite understand 9-11. I didn't actually understand, like, what's actually happening here, but I could sense the seriousness of it. And when I was in fourth grade, we went on a field trip to New York, New York City closely after the World Trade Centers had been hit. And I remember, uh, you know, 450 students in my class and all of these different coach buses, we drive by ground zero of the World Trade Center. And like half of the bus that's on the wrong side of that all came over to the one side. We could sense as a group, like, this is serious, there's a lot of weight to this, and we just drove around ground zero looking at the rubble and the debris, roads closed off. I remember saying, like, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I sense something serious is there, and I'll always remember those images. Uh, that was like the, the, the most memorable New York City trip. The most memorable Washington, D.C. trip for us, uh, we went and hit all the classic spots around D.C., but in particular... We had Arlington National Cemetery as a class, and even more specifically than that, we went to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I don't know if you've ever been there or are familiar with it, but it was like a wild experience. Since 1921, the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier has provided a final resting place for one of America's unidentified World War I service members. And since that date in 21, unknowns from later wars were added in 1958 and 1984. This tomb also serves as a place of mourning and a site of reflection of military service. If you went to this place in Arlington National Cemetery, you'd see this huge monument that's made out of marble and engraved in big letters on this monument, it says this, here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. So, so what the United States did was they said, man, we've got all of these wars, and it's, it's happening pretty regularly. One of the natural consequences of war is that men and women are killed in combat, and at times they're, they're unidentifiable, whether from wounds or with identification that's not on them at the time. And so you have, at time, casualties that nobody knows who they are, where they're from, what age they are. And so this monument was created in D.C. to give honor to those people. And what's fascinating is not just the people who show up to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to give honor to those men and women who have died for the country, but what's, oh, what else is, is fascinating is the guards that guard the tomb of the unknown soldier. I can remember being in middle school, and I was like, most important thing to me was to like, try and be cool in middle school and goofing around with my friends. And yet you show up to the tomb of the unknown soldier, you immediately feel like this is not a good place to goof around. The, the, the soldiers in particular are dressed uh, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, they guard this tomb. So for decades, there has been a guard at this tomb, regardless of weather, regardless of time of day. And what they do is uh, they're dressed in all of this very specific kind of wear. They have a rifle as a weapon with them. There's a black mat that goes in front of the tomb. You can look this up on YouTube because people show up because it's fascinating to watch. And what happens is these guards, they will walk 21 steps, very like particular and precise steps. Then they, they get to the edge of the mat and they face one direction for 21 seconds. 
Then they turn and face a different direction for 21 seconds, and then they walk 21 steps back across the mat, and then they face a third direction for 21 seconds, and then they turn and face a fourth direction for 21 seconds, and then head back the other way. It's fascinating because 21 symbolizes the highest symbolic military honor that can be given, which is a 21-gun salute. And so you can actually show up and you see this black mat. Most of the mat looks brand new, even though it's been used for decades. And it looks brand new because of the precision with how these men and women walk. It's like they walk in the exact same place and have for decades. So they're 24 hours, 365. They're walking in the exact same place over and over and over. The procedure and the process and the precision, it's fascinating. And, and really, some people show up different times of the year just because they want to see the changing of the guard. For, for about half the year, each guard's shift is an hour. For a different half of the year, their shift is 30 minutes. And so this changing of the guard takes about nine minutes. Somebody comes out with the next guard on shift and they go through a procedure where this person's like checking what they look like. They have white gloves on. They're checking their weapon to see any kinds of dirt. Then they transfer over a nine minute period from one guard to the next and the process continues. And you can be there, but for the changing of the guard, they make an announcement like everybody has to stand and everybody has to be silent. And if you are not one of those two things, they will literally stop this uh, process and they will address you, maybe even throw you out. That's something else you can watch on YouTube. When people don't give enough respect, that uh, they'll throw people right out of the ceremony. It's silent and there's honor and it's, it's quiet and calm. This is the changing of the guard. And as you can imagine, the guard position is a serious enough role that they have applications from U.S. Army members like way more than really they can sift through well. But the qualifications are, are, are across the board. Like your height and weight is evaluated, your fitness levels evaluated, your understanding and history of wars and your United States history, the history of that tomb in particular, the history of Arlington National Cemetery. You actually have to memorize where certain soldiers are in this enormous cemetery. Like the qualifications are insane. And I remember sitting there with my buddies in middle school and thinking to myself, uh, we're not getting close to this tomb if we wanted to. In fact, they, they walk with a rifle that's very strategically, they switch it from shoulder to shoulder as they're walking because the rifle's always on the outside of the tomb. It goes like tomb, soldier, and then their rifle because they want to symbolize, I am standing between any threat in this particular memorial and monument. It's this fascinating process to watch. And I remember thinking like, man, we're not getting close to that tomb even if we want to because of how they currently guard it. And we're also not getting close even if we want to because of the preparation that goes into years worth of them wanting to be a guard at the tomb. Like for years in private and secret moments, they're creating themselves to be something for them to have an opportunity to guard this tomb for a half hour at a time. I remember looking at these guys and being like, man, this is like fascinating. And then processing all that has to be true of these men and women to even be given the opportunity to walk back and forth in front of this tomb for 30 minutes to 60 minutes at a time. This is fascinating. And Proverbs 4 is going to use that guarding language in the intent is to get us to be that serious and thoughtful about guarding something in our life. 
like with the same seriousness, precision, planning, and thoughtfulness, we ought to be guarding something in our life. Let let me read it for you. Proverbs 4, if you're there, verse 23. Pretty short sentence that I think packs a ton of power and weight. Here's what it says. Above all else, with top-level seriousness, with thoughtful calculation, with more attention than anything else, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart because it controls your life. Guard your heart because it determines the course of your life. And so according to Proverbs, if you care about your life, which I think you do, then if you care, you ought to be deadly serious and a ruthless guard of your heart with your lifestyle. That's your job. It's nobody else's role. That's your burden to carry. This is the job that, according to Proverbs, and the wave of life God is calling this room into is you need to be ruthless and deadly serious about what you allow into your heart. Because everything you do, believe, say, think flows from it. Like your life flows from your heart. And so you need to be dead serious about guarding your heart from anything that would bring death and destruction. You're a guard of your own heart, and it's a job that needs your full attention, but this isn't a job that you can just show up and be good at. I wish that were the case. Like, I, I, I immediately think of some sports that, uh, like, I, I've played golf for a lot of my life, and uh, there's, there's some people even in this church that are playing golf for the first time, and, and I hear all the time, like, oh, but I'm not any good, and it's like, no, none of us were. Like, if, if you're starting to play golf, you don't just naturally show up and have, like, any level of skill. You're just not naturally good at it. But there are some other sports that you can just be, like, super athletic, and your body can be, you know, tall, strong, quick, fast, and you can have some natural skill. I wish I would tell you that guarding your heart was the kind of job that you can just naturally be good at. It doesn't take much effort, but you can just show up in moments and crush it. But unfortunately, for us to guard our heart well, it's going to take a level of preparation in secret and private moments. Unfortunately, we can't show up to moments in our life that demands a guard and draw from things that haven't been built in private and secret moments for years. In fact, the United States looks at a group of people and doesn't say, hey, I just trust you in this moment to protect this particular tomb from an outside threat. They're like, no, 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 it's too important. You have to be somebody. You have to be becoming somebody. You have to put work in in this place and that place for years and hours and decades before we even allow you to get into a space where you're properly guarding this moment. Because if there's a threat, you can't draw on what hasn't been built for years and decades in private moments. One of the things I I think I talk about all the time here, because I think it's so important, is habits. And, And the reason is because habits and like who you are comes from the things that you do. One of the best selling books of all time, I would highly suggest it. Uh, the author's name is James Clear. The book's name, Atomic Habits. He says, he says it this way. I think it's really insightful and helpful. He says, you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your habits. In other words, many of us in this room would have the same goals. 
Like if you're married, we would say, man, I want a healthy, enjoyable, thriving marriage. If you're a parent, I want to be a great parent. I want to be great and thrive in my career. I want to have financial stability and success. A lot of us would have the same goals. What separates somebody alongside of me that has the same goals as I do if one of us gets it and one of us doesn't? According to James Clear, he says, no, no, we, we all essentially want the same things. But unfortunately, just because it's a goal, it, it, that's not where your life's going to go, just towards your goals. Your life's going to go as your habits go. Your life's going to go as your decisions of what I'm going to do day in and day out. That's where you're going to go. We don't rise to our goals. We fall to our habits. I think that's insightful because we can't just be people who say, man, I, I want to guard my heart well. I want to be healthy. If my heart's healthy, then the rest of me is healthy. If my heart's unhealthy, then the rest of me is unhealthy. And so, man, that's a goal of mine. I'm just going to have it. It's like, no, no, you've got to actually prepare. You've got to do some things. You've got to win in private and secret moments. You could desire to be a ruthless guard of your own heart. You could be wildly compelled to not let anything destructive near your heart, and it's not going to matter unless your private secret moments are filled with preparation. Now, if we want to be serious about preparation, if we want to be people who actually uh, show up in moments where lies and attacks are coming towards our heart are going to lead us into unhealthy spaces. If we want to be serious about that, I think a follow-up question is like, what, what can that preparation look like? As good as a weight room might be, that's not really going to help you guard your heart. As great as, as running early in the morning and, and studying late at night, keeping your brain sharp, there's some things you can do. To prepare in this spiritual battle to guard your heart. Let me make some suggestions if you actually want to be serious about guarding your heart. Because you believe, as Proverbs would say, above all else, this is the priority. Because everything you do and everything you are flows from it. So you better be thoughtful. You better be calculated with what you allow to affect your heart. You want to be serious about that? Let me make some suggestions. There, there's a really interesting and powerful section of your Bible called Ephesians, and there's even a little smaller section that has historically been called the armor of God. Here's my suggestion. You, you want to be a good preparer for the war that's going on for your heart. My suggestion is spend some time in the Bible. Spend some time in the Bible. Ephesians 6 has this section called the armor of God, and the idea of this section is to help followers of Jesus just win at following him faithfully. That's the point. And one of the items in this part of the Bible that's talked about is called the sword of the Spirit. And the language used around the sword of the Spirit is fascinating because the sword of the Spirit is the Bible, and its design is to be a weapon to fight in this battle to guard your heart. Like this is a weapon given in this particular fight for followers of Jesus. But what's fascinating is at this point in the world when this was written, there's, there's actually different kinds of swords that were used in battles. And fortunately for us, those different kinds of swords had different kinds of names. And so we get a really good idea of what the intention of God was when he says, sword of the spirit. Like, hey, your Bible's been actually given to you in the war for your heart. We get a good idea of what that means. And really, the, the best word we can use to, today to explain the sword of the Spirit then is like a dagger. 
It's not this big, long sword that in battle you swing and just like try and catch a neck and try and catch an arm and maybe get a foot. You're just like swinging this thing generally. We're talking about a dagger. That's not effective generally swinging. A dagger is created to be specific, pinpoint accurate, identify some places, and then launch that thing fatally in particular directions. Let me give you an example of what this means. Like if you are somebody who struggles with insecurity, the Bible's not given generally to help you. What I mean is if you're like, man, I'm insecure and it's affecting my life. I want to grow in security. Like let me just think of Bible. I don't know, John 3.16, that's pretty famous and popular. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever, you know, believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. Like maybe that's going to help. It's like, no, 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 that's not the dagger. That's like just swinging a big sword. If you struggle with insecurity, then you should maybe look at more like Psalm 139 that says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God is saying, I very intentionally created you. I know you. I love you. I'm for you. Everything about who you are in your design is specifically given. This is you taking a weapon to guard your heart and pressing it in specific places. Like maybe sexual sin is a place that you find yourself struggling. It's not just the Bible's not meant to be used to just like swing it around and say really nice and platitude things. It's for you to say, no, no, what does the Bible have to say about this particular lie that I believe? What does the Bible have to say about the pleasure I'm seeking to find in this area? What does the Bible have to say about me consuming what's not mine to consume? So my suggestion, if you want to be serious about guarding your heart is to spend some time in your Bible. Use it in preparation. You have to know it. You have to mine it. You have to search it. Put some daggers in your pocket so when it's time to guard your heart, and it's going to be time at some point every single day, when it's time to guard your heart, you have some daggers you can use, and you can start pressing those into places that are fatal to lies, death, and destruction that are specific to you. A lie doesn't have power unless we believe it. And so you've got to evaluate, what does the Bible have to say about the war I'm fighting with my heart? How do I guard this one in here? Not yours, mine. Spend some time in the Bible. Figure out what it has to say. This is a weapon in our tool belt. To guard our heart. Let me give you a, a second one. Spend time with community. So spend time in the Bible. Spend time with community. We aren't built to be successful at guarding our hearts alone. Like we need some people to walk with us. This is not God saying, hey, you know, this, this is a suggestion might be helpful to you. Why don't you do this with some people? It, it's not a suggestion. He's saying, you're not built for it. You need some other people alongside of you. Here's some Bible. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says this. See to it, brothers and sisters. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, be serious about this. None of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Like be serious alongside of each other that you're not stumbling through sin and allowing death and destruction to enter in the seriousness of your heart. Like with arms locked, be serious about this. Verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Like you're going to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Death and destruction is going to penetrate your guard into your heart if you're not alongside of other people that care for your heart too. 
If you're familiar at all with the the 300 Spartans, one of the fascinating things that led to victory for them was their shield, and their shield wasn't just for number one. Their shield was to protect parts of them, and it was also designed to protect the person next to them. So in a line of people, they were impenetrable because of how they viewed their shield. Like, I am in danger if I don't have somebody next to me. I'm not safe if I'm out here by myself. My weapons aren't designed for me to be here by myself. I need somebody to lock arms with. Hebrews 10 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let me think about how I do this with somebody else so that we both have health, so that we both guard our hearts, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, walk alongside with seriousness and intention. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says this, Brothers and sisters, you're a follower of Jesus. It says if somebody is caught in a sin, and it's going to happen because nobody's perfect, there's a lot of sin in the room. There's a lot of sin on the stage. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you may be tempted. Like if you're doing community well, you're going to get some eyes on things that don't look like Jesus. And Galatians is like, yup. And then you're there so that you both together can lock arms and fight to look more like Jesus over time and to be drawn into the flourishing life of becoming like him. So like do this thing together. You're going to find things that don't look like Jesus and then gently work towards restoration and renewal. Closes verse 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Walk with each other because if you're by yourself, you're not built for it. It's a burden you were never meant to carry. Uh, We have this thing in our family uh, where all of the boys in our family, once they hit 13, they go on this miserable trip uh, to the Canadian wilderness. And uh, you basically spend this like five-day trip. uh, You canoe, which I don't think is fun, even luxuriously here in Ohio. It's like, I don't want to do it. Um, you canoe and you get sick of that pretty fast and then you get out of the canoe and you walk on a trail between lakes and so you just put that thing right up on your shoulders, your pack, everything you have, you put the canoe on your shoulders, it doesn't feel good no matter what canoe you have. Um, The technology doesn't exist for your shoulders not to hurt in that process. And once you turn 13 in our family, one of the things you have to do is you have to walk one of the most difficult trails between lakes And at 13, you wear that canoe and you're not allowed to put it down. And so I've I've gone there with grown men and women and and I've watched this trail break people. And I always think to myself, wait, I was 13 and I've got a brother who's about my height and maybe 40 pounds lighter. I have uh, nephews who are skin and bones thin and they've all done it. And I've thought to myself, wait a second, I have carried a canoe and a pack at 13 years old across this trail and I'm watching grown men and women like fail at it what's going on here and you know what's unique to this trip of us guys as Petersons every few hundred meters there's another man there 
who comes alongside of that person, walks with them, encourages them. Because you get these middle school boys complaining and crying, I can't do it, I've got to put it down. And this, as a group, we just surround these 13-year-olds and we help them get to the end. Like, you're not putting it down, you can't put it down. Let it break your shoulders. You don't have collarbones at the end of this? That's the price. You've got to get through it. And I just remember thinking to myself, I, I, I honestly don't think at 13 years old, I possessed a mental toughness to get myself through it, but I had some people alongside of me that says, no, you can do it. You're going to be discouraged. It's going to hurt. You're going to try and quit, but you can do it. Don't put it down. You can do it. Spend some time with community. You want to be serious about guarding your heart? You're not built for it. Unless you have some people that love you and care about you, that want to lock arms with you, that care about the health of your heart, that can help walk with you, that love you enough to put eyes on your life, in your marriage, in your decisions, to call out things that don't look like Jesus and draw you into things that do. Get around people who love you. Give them access to your life. Give them access to your struggles. Give them access to your fight. Use the power of community. We have groups in this church designed to do just that. Like, let's know each other. Let's unconditionally love each other. Let's lock arms with each other so that we can actually walk into the flourishing life of becoming like Jesus. Spend time in the Bible. Spend time with community. And third, spend time planning. Here, here's what I mean. A famous basketball coach named John Wooden, I don't actually know if he's the originator of this, but I always give him credit for it. Uh, he says this, failing to plan is planning to fail. Failing to plan is planning to fail. In moments of strength, we need to be people who plan for moments of weakness. What I mean is that we need to be people who, from high, clear view, saying, this is what I want. I want a healthy heart. I want to guard well from things that are going to bring death and destruction into my life. I want that. And so in these moments of strength, I need to start making some decisions for the moments that I'm weak. Because if I just plan on showing up to these moments that, that are going to demand a guard who's serious and ruthless, and I'm just going to work on my willpower to get myself through that, that's planning to fail. Because you failed to plan ahead of time. Uh, there's a pastor when I was, I think, 19. I was in college. Uh, I got around a pastor and I remember hearing him speak for a little bit and it, and it absolutely rattled me because what I looked at when I looked at this pastor who was like maybe in his 50s at the time, I looked at a guy who I thought was far more disciplined than me. I looked at a guy who I thought was far more like Jesus than me. I looked at a guy who, if it came down to one-on-one, -on -one, who's going to guard their heart better? It's him. Everybody would think it was him. Ten out of ten times, it's him. And yet I remember hearing him talk about all the safeguards that he had set up in his life, and it rattled me because I'm like, wait, this dude is more like Jesus, more disciplined, and has better habits, and yet he's worried about failure in a way that I'm not. Like, like something's off here. And then he made this statement I'll never forget. He said, 95% of the time, I don't need safeguards. Like 95% of the time, I'm good. But it's 5% of the time that has an ability to ruin my life. And I'm not willing to take that chance. 5% of the time could cost me my family and my career and everything that I love and value. I'm not willing to pay that price. 
And so I'm going to set up safeguards. I'm going to bring people into this. I'm going to have things on my computer and my phone. People are going to know where I'm at. I'm not willing to do this alone. I'm going to set up my safeguard. It rattled me because I'm like, dude, I'm 19. I want to be a pastor. And I'm like, I I don't have any of that. I just trust myself. A lesson that has changed me. Like, I got to get serious about this. The moments that I really want to guard my heart well, I've got to get serious for the moments that I'm weak. Uh, My wife and I dated uh, long distance for our entire relationship, three and a half years. The closest we ever lived to each other during that time was 11 hours by car. Um, I don't know anything different. I dated one girl. So people have asked me, like, it must have been terrible. It's like, honestly, maybe, but I don't know what it's like to date a girl in the same city. So it was fine to us. Um, But because of that experience, uh, for years working in college ministry and even, even since, uh, if there's somebody in a, in a long-distance dating relationship, a lot of times they'll come up to me and just be like, hey, best thoughts and tips for a long-distance relationship. One of the things I repeat all the time is, in moments when you're apart, you're going to have to make some decisions to be successful when you're together. Like, if you bank on uh, consuming only what God has you to consume when you're together, if you want to be healthy at the end of this time you're together, you will fail if you just want to show up to that moment and then bank on your strength and mental toughness. You're not built for it. You have to set yourself up, have some planning so that when you're together, you're set up to guard your heart well. You're set up to not consume what's not yours to consume. You're set up to be life-giving to people, not life-stealing from people. So in moments of strength, you have to set yourself up for moments of weakness. What does this practically look like? I think you got to think through for you in particular what brings destruction to you right now. Like if you're on Instagram and, and all you're finding is relationships you wish you had or marriages that look more fun and more fulfilling and more life-giving or the kids that seem to be behaving really well on Instagram and your kids don't behave quite that way and you're, you're, you're just being bombarded with all these lies and insecurities and you're just being stirred up to be unhealthy and death and destruction, then you need to say, what's that costing me? What do I need to do to walk towards health? Now, this is the Bible. Let me step over here. This is Luke's opinion. Nobody really cares if you're following them or not. Nobody really cares. Uh, If they really care, that's something they need to deal with. We've got to get serious. I went years ago, slashed the mess out of the people I follow on Instagram. You want to know why? It was just leading to unhell for me. I was seeing some things that made me feel discontent. I was seeing some things that made me want to shake my fist at God and say, how come you did there and you didn't do here? And so I'm like, you know what? This is just unhealthy. What does it cost me? Like, what am I willing to pay for a healthy heart? Unfollow. Delete this app. Get rid of that. No more internet access. I don't know what this means for you. What are you believing? What are you being led into? And what are you willing to pay to guard your heart? For some of you, you need to get real serious because all Instagram does is it leads you to an unhealthy heart. Maybe movies or TV shows are causing you to want things, desire things, sexually consume things that aren't yours. Then then get rid of the access. Get some people in the fight where you're doing wild things like every single day you're just reporting, hey, I watched this, I watched this show, I put on this movie. Start getting radical about guarding your heart. Start having the kind of thoughtfulness the United States government puts in front of a tomb with guarding your heart because from it flows everything. 
You want to be deadly serious about the input you allow into your heart because it affects everything about your life. We need to get dead serious about this. We need to be ruthless about this. Because there's so much health available. There's like so much that could be true for you. And so starve yourself from what is unhealthy. Nobody cares. Your social media platform, nobody's looking at that as much as you. Nobody's scanning through followers as much as you think. Start to get serious about guarding your heart and starve yourself from what is unhealthy so that you will be hungry for what is good and healthy. Be ruthless about what you input. Be ruthless about what your eyes see and your ears hear because Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Your heart is the vital life giver. If it's unhealthy, all of you is unhealthy. Damage to your heart equals damage to your life. What's too high of a cost for you? What have you said, you know, I know this leads to unhealth, but ah, I'm just not willing to pay that price. Ah, I'm not willing to sacrifice that. I'd rather be unhealthy and have this than be healthy and not have it. What's too high of a cost? I would say, Man, if we're talking about your heart, let's get ruthless. Let's get serious. Let's get thoughtful. What do you allow to be input into your heart? Proverbs 4 is just saying we need to get dead serious because everything you do flows from your heart. And, you know, I, I can't help but talk about guards and tombs without thinking of another guarded tomb. I can't help but talk about monuments. Speaking of that monument song, we sang a song written by a team of people here in our church. I can't help but think of that monument and a monument of the tomb of the unknown soldier and think about like a monument of a cross. I can't talk about this stuff without like thinking of what the Bible has to say about another guarded tomb, about other monuments like the cross of Jesus. Because of the cross of Jesus and because of the empty tomb, guarding our heart doesn't have to be without hope. And here's what I mean. I mean that in two ways. First, you can actually be successful at this. Like, like you actually can be successful with the power of God and the weapons he's trying to put in your life. Like you can win. The things that are crushing you, the destruction you know is true. The places you go that you know lead to destruction. And you're just like, I don't know if I can ever get free of that. I'm saying to you, you can. You can. The empty tomb of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, give us hope. You can win this. Secondly, for the days that you don't, the days that you feel failure, the days that you know that was destructive, you know it puts you in a bad heart space, you know you're led into what is unhealthy, this monument and this tomb leads you to say, let me put that at the feet of Jesus, restart because he's in the renewal business. Like we're not going to be perfect at this. You're going to have moments every single day where you're going to have to be a guard. That's serious, and stuff's just going to get through. That's just who we are. We're people who fail. We're people who don't have it all together. We're people who don't come with all kinds of spiritual wins and all kinds of spiritual fame and power. And for those days, we say, man, because of the empty tomb, the government put guards in front of that tomb too. We have a monument too. 
And it didn't say anything about honored soldiers. It said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, meant to mock him. And because we can look at that, we can say, you know, let me put this at the feet of Jesus. Allow him to restore. Allow him to rewrite. Allow him to renew. This is what the follower of Jesus has access to. You can do this. And the times you don't, put it at his feet and get after it the next day as well. Let me, let me pray for us. Ask God to give us that power. Father, we, uh, man, at moments, I can at least speak for me, at moments, I, I want to be a great guard of my heart. At moments, I want to put in hours of preparation every single day so that I can win in these moments. Uh, but if I'm honest, and you know this, God, I, at other moments, I, I want death and destruction. I want what, what feels good, what seems good, what looks good. I want to input my heart with just impulse and pleasure and platform. And so I'm asking, man, by your spirit, with your power alone, would you give me eyes to see? Would you give me a desire to want to be a serious guard of my heart? Would you give me even courage? to bring some people into this fight with me, to believe that I need some arms locked alongside of me? Would you give me a desire to spend some time in the Bible? Would you give me a desire, names to think through, to join in this fight? Would you give me a desire to plan, to make some decisions from moments of strength that set me up in weakness? Would you give us this, God? We want health. We want life. We want joy. We want contentment and satisfaction. And so I ask that you give us inability to guard our hearts well. Thank you for Jesus and the role that he plays, not only in allowing us to accomplish this, but saving us when we don't. It's in his name we pray. Amen.